consistency is a superpower and motivation is the biggest predictor of success. Welcome to the Bold Moves How Did You Know podcast, a podcast for the naturally curious who want to define their own path. I'm your host, Kristen Rocco, and here I'm sharing bold move stories that propelled my guests from curiosity to action. And in doing so, they've defined a path that is purposeful to them. Through these stories, I hope you'll be inspired to pursue your boldest dreams. With me today is Amy Schoenthal. She is a renowned journalist, author, and marketing industry veteran. As a top contributor to Forbes Women, she shines the spotlight on those who have been historically underestimated, yet they're doing the work to solve society's biggest problems. Her work has included interviews with so many people you all have heard of, but to name a few, Senator Maisie Hirano, Tori Birch, and Marie Kondo. She's got a book coming out in the spring. It's called The Setback Cycle, and it's about how founders and leaders triumph over setback. She also boasts a two-decade marketing career working on some of the world's largest brands like Procter & Gamble and Google, and now she's working in a consultative role, helping brands shape their narratives and captivate audiences. She's got a slew of other things going on, y'all, so I'm going to go ahead and stop there and we'll get into all of it but welcome to the show Amy I am so happy to have you today I'm so happy to be here thank you yes like I said in the introduction you have done so much in your career and I think you captured it as a portfolio career because you really haven't been focused on one thing it's always been much broader, many more different lanes of things that you're working on at any given time. So I'd really love for you to tell everybody about how you got started in your career. So where did it all start and how has it evolved over the years? Sure. Well, I think the reason I do so many things beyond just the day job, whatever the day job has been at any given moment throughout my career is because I got into that habit in journalism school. I was at the University of Maryland and in order to pass, it was like a very rigorous journalism curriculum. And in order to pass our classes, we had to get 10 articles published every semester in outside publications. And so it couldn't just be the, you know, campus newspaper. It had to be like, we had to go be freelance journalists for, in wow. addition to our coursework. And for me, in addition to, I had a part-time job on campus. I was part of the work study program. So I always had a part-time job where I worked a few hours a week. Um, and so I have been juggling a lot of things for a very long time. And I think when you get into that habit at a, at a very young age, you, you learn how to juggle it. And so when I started my career, I graduated and I went into a public relations job, which then evolved into a social media marketing career. I always wrote on the side. I always sought out publications that I could write for. I always sought out volunteer work because, and that's how we met through an organization mm -hmm. called Cheese the First that we were both volunteering for back in the day. And I'm still very involved with them. And so I always had this drive to do multiple things because as you said, I think I was doing a portfolio career before that had a name mm -hmm. because it, it was interesting to me to juggle a lot of things and to learn about a lot of different things that ended up being additive to each other. 
I think I was better at all my jobs because I did all the other ones. And then I had a, yes, as you said, a two decade career in marketing. I worked at agencies for my entire career until a couple Mm -hmm. of months ago when I went off on my own. And now I am a founder slash marketing consultant. I do a lot of social media strategy, LinkedIn strategy for founders and executives. And then I ghostwrite a lot of their posts on LinkedIn and I ghostwrite their op-eds. So it really just serves to elevate their thought leadership in their industry and within the media. I love that idea of the portfolio career and not thinking about a career as linear, but as wide and broad and that you can tackle all of your interests and curiosities um, throughout your career, as you were explaining your writing process and having get articles published by all of these publications while you were in college, it led me to think about how did you fine tune or hone your topic interest? Did you start writing on a broad array of topics and then figure out what you were most interested about? And I would be curious to know how you got to Forbes Women. You know, how did you pitch a contributor, or maybe they sought you out? So like I said, in my early career, I was doing a lot of volunteering and I started writing about that. I was actually one of the travel bloggers in the early aughts when, you know, we all had blogger accounts. Remember this? Um, I was a travel blogger and I did all these like travel blogging meetups and met other writers and, and things like that. So I kind of got connected to a lot of writers in that way. And then even just through volunteering at organizations, not even through writing, I, I just kind of built my network. That sounds gross to say. I just kind of like made mm-hmm. friends um, and then I kept in touch with those friends like you. And so we, <laughs> I had this vast network and when certain opportunities came up, people thought of me and they had known about my travel writing and on my personal blog. And then I think someone invited me to write for the Huffington Post when they were doing their contributor network or their freelancer network. And so I wrote about cause marketing and travel. Those were my two passions at the time and how, you know, travel could be a window to getting people to be more cause-minded because it made them more globally aware of things that were going on and and got them out of their bubble. And so that was the topic I started writing about. It was more about uh, cause. And then that shifted into when I went to Forbes, they um, were increasing their contributor program. I think around 2017 is when I started writing for them. And they I think they called it swim lanes at the time. And because I was a marketer, that was my original angle Mm. in becoming one of their contributors. They wanted people to dispel marketing myths and talk about what was going on in culture and offer my perspective as a marketer. And so I think my original swim swim lane was marketing without the jargon. And so I gave a very straightforward take on certain things. And then that somehow, and I really cannot pinpoint when this happened, I don't know, but somehow I started profiling really interesting people who were working in marketing. And then that evolved to just profiling really interesting people and leaders and founders. And then all of a sudden that became my swim lane, just telling the career journeys and the founder journeys of these very prominent people. And that's kind of what led me to today, which is what I do. I talk about people who are shaping society for the better. And that's what led me to my book. Wow. There were so many different things that I thought about in terms of how people can get from here to there. Because this podcast is bold moves. And so talking about what are some of the bold moves of your life? And then how did you know? How do you identify 
what it is you want to do, and then how do you actually get there? Because I think a lot of people struggle with feeling stuck in, I have this vision for what I want to do, but like, I'm not sure how to uh, make the moves forward in order to pursue that dream. And what I read between the lines from what you were saying is that you need to make it easy for people to refer you. So when you start talking about what you're doing and you're putting yourself out there, people start to think of you for different opportunities. Would you agree? Is that how a lot of the cool opportunities you've had have come to fruition? I think that's one of the things. That is one of many things you have to do. And what you just said about how people have a big vision and they don't know how to get to it, I think that might be true. But when that big vision is so scary and feels so far away, and I talk about this in my book, there's a small step framework that you can adapt. So if you want to, like I said, write a book, people come to me all the time. How did you become a Forbes writer? How did you become a Forbes writer? How did you get your book published? And I say, I just started writing, but it took a really long time. Mm -hmm. Like I have been doing freelance writing for over 10 years, you know, and it was very small at first. And like I said, it started as a travel blog, like just a personal blog. So my advice to them is just write, just start writing and then talk about your writing and share your writing in any forum you have available to you. That's what I did. And I think also speaking it out loud, it took me a really long time to say the words, I am a writer. It took a really long Mm -hmm. time for me to call myself a writer because like I said, we associate ourselves with our day jobs so much that it was easy for me to say, oh, I'm a marketer or I'm a public relations account executive or whatever my job title was at that time. It was very hard for me to say, I am a writer, even though I have always been a writer, always, right? Yes. <laughs> I, I am a formally trained journalist. You know, I went to right. school for this and I have for always this. done, yeah. I have always written for some publication somewhere from the Prince George's Post in Maryland to the Huffington <laughs> Post to yeah. the campus newsletter. I've, I've always been a writer and it's, it's hard to call myself that because I didn't feel like I was an accomplished enough writer. And I think a lot of people fall into that trap. So I would say just what small steps can you take today to start building towards that big thing you want to do? I don't think 20 years ago, I was saying, I want to write a book someday. I think it was probably in the back of my mind but I wasn't like consciously building towards it. I was just like, I like writing. I'm going to see where I can do it as much as possible. <laughs> like Motivation is the biggest predictor of success. So if yes. you're very motivated to do something, you will do it. You will find a way to do it. Doesn't mean you'll make money doing it. Doesn't mean you'll be super successful at it. You probably won't be successful at it at the beginning because you're doing something new. But if you practice, consistency is a superpower and motivation is the biggest predictor of success. Success comes over time, and sometimes you have to reevaluate what success is in the moment. So, Amy, writing every day could have been classified in those early days as a measure of success, just sitting down and actually doing the act of writing. And then as the the goalpost moves, as you get better at your craft and you start finding new opportunities, then it's, oh, okay, well, now I can be published in a publication. And that Right. And so it's not trying to set success up at day one for what that really big audacious goal is, but what are those incremental steps that you can achieve along the way to help you get there? People, people always say to me, wow, you're so well connected. And like, 
I didn't come from some family that gave me connections upon my becoming an adult, right? Like nothing was handed to me. I just took it upon myself to go do things that interested me, right? Like volunteering and writing and that forged connections for me at a very young age. Mm -hmm. And those networks sort of blossomed and grew and expanded and yeah, now I'm all connected, but that's like 20 years later of, you know, just like being in New York and continuing to foster relationships. And then yes, because I've always been a writer, because I've always had this small thing sort of humming along in the background, people have considered me for opportunities. And yes, eventually that background thing, I think like really recently, like probably this year, that thing that was humming in the background for so long has finally taken center stage. Sure. You mentioned that you live in New York City, which is the epicenter. Nobody can deny that New York City is the epicenter of media, right? It's the epicenter of a lot of different careers. But what about people who don't live in New York City? They don't live in big cities. Do people have in other areas have enough access today to create a life that they dream of. What would be some advice if they're not surrounded by people like you are in New York to start building their network, to start taking these opportunities? I don't think you need to be in any specific geographic setting to build relationships. I don't even think a lot of, yes, of course, a lot of the events and in-person things that I've gone to over the years have been in New York. I definitely have an advantage being here and being able to go to things in person. And even some of the jobs that I've gotten, you know, they're headquartered in New York and you have to be there in person right now, maybe only one or two or three days a week, but these are certainly things to keep into consideration. However, we're not in person right now and we're doing this podcast interview. How many, how many meetings do you take per day on Zoom that aren't in person? How many phone calls do you make? How many, you know, interactions do you start forming through a DM or through a comment on social media? You can make, you can, you can knock social media all you want, but it is by nature social and you can actually form true relationships on the internet in a not creepy way. Yes. And that's not that doesn't, where you are located does not matter. You can form relationships no matter where you are. That said, I would encourage people, I think a lot of young people who maybe graduated college in the pandemic are a little hesitant to go do things in person, especially for their career, for their network building or community building. And I would say no matter where you are, there's a community somewhere. There are writers in your neighborhood, no matter where you are and go find them, go talk to them. You can geolocate someone on LinkedIn. You could say like, oh, this person is based in Atlanta where I am. Maybe I'll see if they want to meet for coffee. Or I'll say like, hey, I'm going to be in, you know, this location that's pretty centrally located, working at this coffee shop on this day. Do you want to meet up, right? You know, you keep it very simple and you can definitely bring some of those relationships offline, but it doesn't, I don't think it matters where you're based. If you want to do something, like I said, you'll find a way to do it if you're motivated. Let's transition into talking about your book. I want to read a quote that you posted on your LinkedIn. I loved it. You said, I am constantly uh, hearing stories of everyday trailblazers who have worked through personal, professional, or societal setbacks. 
emerging with innovative ideas that not only bring them success, but benefit society as a whole. Their stories combined with experts, psychologists, executive coaches, and research led me to this framework that I hope will inspire you, especially those of you in the thick of it right now, to work towards your own creative rebirth. That is an amazing antidote that sums up why you wrote this book. So can you tell us about the setback cycle and how you got this idea for what this book is? Sure. I got the idea from interviewing so many founders and leaders over the past six or seven years. I noticed that in every interview, no matter who it was, whether it was a politician a celebrity, a fashion designer, a fitness instructor, or a brand new founder, that when they were telling me their story, they really lit up and got so excited when they started talking about how they emerged from some sort of setback, not necessarily a major one, but that always seemed to be the very pinnacle of their great idea. Mm. And I just started noticing it. And once I noticed it, that's all I could see. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> And I was like, why is this happening? You know, it, it seemed like it was bigger than the commonly understood phenomenon of learning from your mistakes, or it wasn't always necessarily classified as like post-traumatic growth because a setback isn't always a trauma, but these things obviously filter into some sort of phenomenon. And I started really digging into research and reading all these books from brilliant authors like Adam Grant, Susan David, Lori Santos, the Yale professor, Carol Dweck, she wrote Mindset. And they all touched on setbacks or Angela Duckworth, who, who came up with grit yes. theory. And so they all touched on the concept of setbacks, but I felt like no one really collected the framework of why this particular phenomenon happens. And so I started taking notes from all these books. And then I started reaching out to experts themselves. Some of the authors that I just mentioned, I spoke to them and we started getting into why people get so excited about the story that they get to share of after they emerged from a setback. When you start to look at something through this lens, all of a sudden you realize that these defining moments in your life were in fact born of setbacks. One of the people I interviewed for the book, she didn't realize that she embarked on this wonderful marketing career uh, that she started in the 1970s. And the reason she went into marketing systems was because she had studied to become a teacher. And when she graduated, teaching jobs were only being given to men because men were dodging the draft by becoming teachers. So she couldn't get a mm. job. She couldn't get a job mm. as a teacher. And so she took a technology class or computer class or whatever it was called at the time, would love to be a fly on the wall in a 1970s computer class, by the way. But that, and that's, and then she got this amazing career that she spent like a very long time in. And so she didn't realize it until I was interviewing for this book, but 40 years ago, she had a setback that led her to her successful career. And so now that you see it, you're not going to be able to unsee it. Yeah. Gosh, it's true. Because as you were saying all of that, I was thinking, what's my setback? And then does it light me up to think about my story from there? And it absolutely does. I mean, you know, everybody goes through those moments of hard times. And when you emerge from that, you, I think it's because you feel so proud of yourself. You're so proud of yourself because you had to work for it. 
Yes. And I have a quote in my book. I think it's from Amy Nelson. She's the founder of The Riveter and her family has been through quite an ordeal this year, the past three years. But she basically said something along the lines of when you're stripped down to the studs, the only thing you can build is up. Yeah. So I think that really encompasses why we grow so much from setbacks and things are going well. You're not really trying to change anything. You're not necessarily using your most creative brain power. You're not finding innovative solutions. You're just kind of floating along. Well, this is fine. So I'll just keep going. That's why a lot of people kind of float into careers that they're not super pumped about because it's easy and they're doing things on autopilot and they're doing things the exact same way they've always done them. And it's very easy, but then when they're forced to be creative or be innovative or, you know, come up with solutions to problems, they haven't used the part of their brain that gets them there because everything has just been so easy. And we can go into why I think marginalized groups make the best founders and the best leaders because they've had to use that part of their brain so often because there's nothing but obstacles and setbacks in their way. But that is really why the creative rebirth comes from enduring a setback. And there, this is research-based. One of my favorite people I interviewed was a neuroscientist and she proved in her lab that people grow more Mm. from setbacks than successes. I'm so excited to read this book and I have to wait another, what, six months until it comes out. Yeah, yeah, a little more. This is exactly, you know, what my podcast is all about. It's inspiring people to not be complacent, to listen to what's inside your your being about what you want to do. And like you said, go after that every single day. It's a baby step, and it but it's action. If you are complacent, then you are going to always desire and never achieve it. You have to take that action, even many actions every day that are aligned to what you want to do in life. And you have to be okay facing, as you call them, setbacks, because you are going to encounter those a lot. But like you said, your and your research and your book is going to prove this out that when you overcome these setbacks, you will emerge a better leader, a better founder, you know, whatever it is that you're aspiring to do, a better person, you will be, you will be more proud of yourself for coming out on the other side than just continuing to stay, you know, comfortable, for example. Yeah, there's a lot more pride in people who really had to work to get to where they are versus someone who like, oh, his brother handed him a job and that's why he has it. Or, you know, someone left a job and they, just sort of fell into this role of running a department because, you know, there was no one else around to do it. And then they just sat there for a year. You know what I mean? Like you hear those stories all the time and you're not very impressed by those stories. You're impressed by the person who didn't graduate college, but, you know, showed perseverance and worked really, really hard to get to wherever they are or saw a problem and decided to solve it and built something where nothing previously existed. Those are the people that that we admire. Yeah. And I'm thinking of the broad slew of people over 2022 and in years prior who have been laid off from jobs. That is a setback. And how you choose to process that and move forward is, you know, the difference between, you know, getting back on your feet and faster and even better, or, you know, just continuing to, you know, maybe, stay a little too long in negative feelings, right? This happened to me, I've talked about it a little bit on the podcast, but you know, I was laid off back in February and it was a setback because of course, you know, I'm trying to grow my career as a content marketing leader 
And then all of a sudden it's like, thank you for everything you've done, but we are going through a company-wide layoff and you're a part of it. So now I'm in the open ocean swimming to shore. I had been thinking about my next career step for a while. And so instead of trying to focus in on, oh no, now I, I don't know what to do. What am I going to do? And all of these feelings that are more about the problem versus the solution, I chose to be like, I'm going to jump into consulting. I know my stuff. As you said, I've built a network. I know that my network can help me out here. And so I've, over the past four months, I've started a consulting career that is beyond my wildest dreams. Sure. And so I think that's also the point of Setbox too, is to push you along in a new or better direction. Yeah. And I, I would venture to say that not all layoffs are setbacks. Some of them can be green lights. And I think mm. that it sounds like that's what it was for you because you were sort of thinking about exploring yeah. consulting. And I mean, you do this podcast, which I would say is content marketing, right? You are creating, right. content, you're <laughs> producing content right. and that shows your skills, that shows your great personality and interview skills. Like these, these are not things that are you know, maybe they weren't your day job, but they're still very, very valuable. And you're showing that in, in a big way. And it's almost like when you get laid off, it's a green light to just go yeah. into all the, go to all, do all the things you always dreamed of doing. Of course, yeah. I don't want to ignore the fact that you then have financial anxiety. You're worried because all of a sudden you go from having a steady paycheck to not having a steady paycheck. Like yes. also, there's also grief in being laid off. There's, even if it's the biggest green light, and I was also recently laid off a few months ago from a big marketing job that I had been at for almost a decade. Wow. And I had always wondered, could I do this on my own? Could I be a consultant? Could I run my own collective? And I had been dabbling in it here and there. But to me, when I was laid off, it was a green light. Mm -hmm. And I, I know a lot of people who feel like that. That doesn't, yeah. and that doesn't mean there wasn't grief. Like when I was like, yes. all of a sudden, my Sunday scaries, those first two weeks were <laughs> higher than they yeah. had been when I had a day job because yeah. I felt this like, oh my God, I don't have a day of meetings to go into tomorrow. I don't have a team to manage. This is so weird. Like, what are they doing over there without me? <laughs> and there, yeah. And there's grief and there's sadness. And I didn't ignore that. I felt it. Like I let it, I let myself feel it. That is part of the setback cycle. You kind of have to like acknowledge the bad feelings but then there are ways to climb out of it. And I have some exercises in the book and it was actually oh, nice. very ironic because I had submitted the final manuscript for the setback cycle less than 48 hours before I was notified of my own layoff. Weird. <laughs> I was like, okay, well, I've spent the past few years studying setbacks. I can get through this. And then I realized my layoff was not a setback. It was a green light. Green light. Oh, I, I and I love how you capture the difference between setbacks and green lights. That, that distinction, I think, is important for people to understand. So it'll be cool to get that a little bit more in the book. Something that you wrote in, in and that I read in the post that you wrote was especially those of you in the thick of it right now. What did you mean by in the thick of it? In the thick of a setback, like going through mm -hmm. a setback and not sure how to move forward, right? If someone is identifying in a certain way, like I'm a married person, and then all of a sudden 
they're divorced or they're no longer a married person, right? Like this identity is like ripped away and you are in the thick of it. You don't know what to do. You don't know how to move forward. And I also want to be clear, like the setback cycle is not trying to glorify pain or encourage you to tear your life apart. Like we don't want that, but right shit happens. The setbacks are inevitable. And like I said, they're not always traumatic. They're not always earth shattering, but that doesn't mean they're any less defining. You're working towards something. You're moving along a certain path and you're building and you're building and you're going towards something. And then all of a sudden that path is ripped away. And instead of going forward, you are sent in reverse. That is what a setback is. So if you are in the thick of that process where you have been working towards something, but then all of a sudden you were just sent in reverse it causes a lot of confusion. It causes a lot of pain and it causes a lot of anxiety. And just because you are in it doesn't mean you can't get through it. However, you can't fast forward to emerge. And that's really what the book is about, how the people who went through this cycle and some of them were going through the setback cycle and then had many setbacks throughout the cycle. But it's the people who, when they emerged, it's because they processed, they properly processed what had happened and they were able to climb out of it with clarity and innovation and a very clear path forward. So that's what I want readers to get. Is there anybody who particularly stands out as one of these people you've interviewed who faced a setback and then emerged in a better you know, place for themselves that comes to you? Of course. Um, well, everyone in the book, I have no favorites. They're all my children. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, and I just wrote an article about this. So I'm going to say Reshma Saujani. She's the founder of Girls Who Code. But mm. the reason she founded Girls Who Code is because in 2009, she ran for office and she ran against a New York City representative who had been an incumbent. She had been the representative for a very long time. And Rushma got a lot of attention for her election. People were really excited about her. She was young. She was in her early 30s. And people were pumped that this newcomer was here to infuse some energy into this congressional seat. And she lost. And when she told me about how she lost, she said it was a spectacular failure. I was like, what do you mean it was spectacular? (laughs) And the reason she created Girls Who Code was because on the campaign trail, she was, was visiting schools and she noticed that computer classes were mostly little boys. And then she looked into why that was happening. And it turned out that girls either like lost interest or lost their confidence in computer skills and coding around the age, between the ages of, I think it was 12 to 17. And she wanted to find out why that was happening. And it was because the teachers weren't really investing in them. And, you know, there's all kinds of bias that we can talk about into why that happens, but that's what led her to create Girls Who Code. And so to date, they've taught, I believe it's over half a million girls how to code. And that's really, those are really important skills that people need. And so we shouldn't be discarding an entire gender over that. And then, you know, rush my head multiple setbacks after that, that led her to create new things. Now she's becoming a really outspoken advocate for childcare reform, both at the federal level and within the private sector. And I just wrote an article about that, but Reshma is also in my book. And so that's why she's top of mind right now, but she is someone who like, she rises like a Phoenix, like don't get in Reshma's (laughs) way. So very, I love it. Thank you for sharing that. All right. So I think I would be remiss if I didn't 
ask you, the author, about your setback and also about the process of becoming an author, right? So all of this is kind of intertwined, I'm sure. This yeah. feels to me like one of your bigger moves, your bolder moves in your career. So can you tell me a little bit about becoming an author and all that has entailed for you? Yeah, there is no process that is more rife with setbacks than trying to become an author if you're not an A-list celebrity or have millions of Instagram followers. So yes, I defied the odds, but I, like I said, I always go back to that quote that motivation is the biggest driver of success because I was so motivated to write this book. I knew I had a book in me and I knew it was this book. And some agents told me like, oh, you don't have enough of a platform. You don't have enough, you know, go increase your social media followers over the next few months and then come back to me. And I was like, I don't really think TikTok followers are buying books, but sure. Like there was an article that came out that said that, but okay. I just kept going and I took people's advice. I listened to their feedback and I addressed their feedback and I just kept going. And I, I worked with this uh, freelance editor to do my proposal and she, every time I came back to her, I said, okay, I had to redo the whole proposal because, you know, everyone said it, it, it felt too much like an anthology, like of too many separate stories. And I had to connect it more. Mm. And she said, I can't believe how quickly you went and turned around this based on the feedback you got three months ago. And I was like, well, I've come this far. I'm not going back now. Like, well, this book is getting published. And I found an amazing agent who finally someone was like, no, this book has legs. Like your platform is Forbes Women. Your platform is the conferences mm -hmm. you speak at, the communities that you're a part of. Like that can't all be summarized in your personal Instagram following. And I think a lot of editors and publishers and agents were a little bit short-sighted in, in seeing one Instagram following and thinking like, you don't have a platform. And I hear this from so many authors. This is not just me. Yes. And, but the perseverance, you know, I just applied a lot of grit and perseverance to this process. Like I wasn't going to accept no, no matter how long it took. And it yeah. only took, and I say only, it felt like forever at the time, but from when I started writing the book and I got my book deal and now it's almost off to publish. By the time the book is published, it will be a three-year process. So I started in March, 2021. The book will be out in March, 2024. And that's like actually not that long for an author to no, go through that. It, it sounds not. long, but it's not. It's not a long time for an author, for sure. I mean, books can be in, in, in the writing process for years and years yeah. and years and years before yeah. they see the light of day. But it just reminds us though, too, that it isn't a sprint. It is a marathon. It's absolutely and a marathon. But it, 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 that doesn't take away from the frustration and the pain and the yes. like difficulty and impatience yes. that you feel during that process. But yes, it is yes. a marathon. There's a reason, you know, a lot of the founders I profile are over 40 because it's, it's yeah. a marathon. By the time you learn these lessons and figure out how to apply the perseverance and grit and know that these things take time, like you have to have a couple of years under you. you know? Yeah. And, you know, I think that your, you know, some of your maturity doesn't even, you don't even mature until 25 and then you need life experience to apply the emotional maturity. And so it makes a lot of sense that you need to be in those forties to be able to do this at a maybe 
quicker pace, but even though it's not quick because it's taken all of this time to apply, to acquire all of the knowledge you need to apply it for those for those situations when they occur. Um, what do you know about being bold today that you wish you would have known earlier on? If you were giving advice to your 25, 30 year old self about being bold, what would it be? The boldest thing you can do is listen to other people and really, really, really listen. Listen to what they're saying. Listen to the advice that they're giving. You don't have to take all the advice. You don't have to follow their direction, but listen and hear what they're saying, because that's going to not only improve your communication skills and, and deepen your relationships, but it's going to give you clues as to what you admire and what you don't about them, about yourself. Pay attention to the world around you right? Don't just barge forward. Listen, pause, take it in, learn, learn the things and apply the lessons. Yeah. Good point. Makes me think that maybe people should keep a notebook next to them or even on their phone to catalog all of this stuff that they're learning along the way. That's a really great piece of advice. Great to leave off on. Thank you, Amy. It has been so much fun having this conversation with you. I can't wait to read your book. I have a Bold Moves book list that will add your book to when it comes out. So in the meantime, where can people find you, connect with you to stay in touch and updated when the Setback Cycle publishes in the spring? Yes, you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, or whatever Twitter is called now at Amy Show, A-M-Y-S-H-O. And I'm going to be giving book announcements and updates through my newsletter, Amy's Antidote. And you can get the link to sign up for that on, on my Instagram page. So that's probably the best place to go. Thank you so much, Amy. This has been really, really fun. And everybody else, thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you will follow the show and we'll see you in the next one. One last thing before I leave you today, don't forget to sign up for the Bold Moves Podcast Club. I'm so excited about this podcast club. We are going to deep dive into the different topics that my guests talk about every month. It's like a book club, but for my podcast. And the idea is that each month, you're going to receive an email to dive deeper into these topics and themes that my podcast guests explored about being bold over the month. That's because nobody said being bold was easy, and we all need a little support and encouragement and also understand what are some of these uh, practices that you can put in place in your own life. How can you think differently about being bold? Because to get to who you want to become may require some changes in what you do to get there. So I'm helping you through this Bold Moves Podcast Club to empower you to take bold action on your dreams. It's free to join, so just go over to my website, kristenrocco.com slash bold-moves-resources, or even easier, open up the show notes right now, click the link, and sign up. It's that simple.